Welcome to Rainbow Colored Glasses, a podcast that looks at LGBT media of the past and asks what it means today. I'm Paul, my guest is Ed, and we're discussing the 1974 film Penda's Fen. David Rudkin wrote the screenplay for BBC's Play for Today series. His story is set in the village of Pinvin. Stephen, the parson's teenage son, is struggling to reconcile his conservative values with his budding homosexual desires. He begins having visions and nightmares which take him on an Alice in Wonderland-style journey through England's pagan past. Now that description barely scratches the surface. Ed, I'll give you a tough question to start you off. How would you summarize this twisty plot? Well, imagine if Percy Weasley from Harry Potter had grown up in the 70s instead of the Harry Potter series timeline. Uh, Or possibly the other way I might look at it is imagine if Eustace Scrub from the Chronicles of Narnia never went to Narnia and instead wound up going to high school still being Eustace Scrub. And instead of going to Narnia when he was younger, he instead goes on a much darker and stranger and more erotic and allegorical, but not Christian allegorical precisely for all the Christ imagery that we see. More of a pagan allegorical more than anything else, I would say. A journey into both his psyche and kind of the history of England a little bit. That's my best shot for starters. That's that's the best I got, Paul. No, it's a weird, it's it's a weird good. wonderful piece. I've I've seen it a few times now, and each time I pick up new details. Uh, he's got a lot of ideas, and he's read a lot of books, Mr. Rudkin. <laughs> now, Rudkin summed it up thus. He said, Pendus Fen is a very simple story. It tells of a boy, Stephen, who is in the last summer of his boyhood, who has a series of encounters in the landscape near his home, which alter his view of the world. Accurate, and also, wow, there's a lot that that kind of glosses over. <laughs> The story is very internal. It's about Stephen having his core values questioned. So he clashes with the playwright. He thinks the man is unnatural. He clashes with the people at his military school uh, because he's just a little too prissy for them, even though he's trying to espouse the school's supposed values. They don't care because he can't play rugby. (laughs) And then there's the milkman, Joel, who... Oh, Joel. Oh, Joel, who just thinks he takes himself a little too seriously and is sort of the key to uh, Stephen's awakening. I would argue, though, based on one of the visions, which I think we'll get to, that there's one of the bullies at his school who also figures pretty prominently in his sexual awakening. Whose name, of all things, is Honeywell. Young Master Honeywell. Uh, it's the first act is very much Stephen in full conservative mode, clashing with the people in his life, and then around the thirty-minute mark, he has his erotic demon sex dream, where <laughs> the, the rugby boys wrestle him, the the bully Mister Honeywell beckons to him, and then a sleep paralysis demon appears on top of him in his bed. An One incubus, of- yes. An incubus, yes. and whose face turns into the milkman's face very briefly. Yeah, and uh, you know me. So the last movie that we uh, covered together on this podcast was The Fruit Machine, which also has some very erotic, symbolic dreams that figure prominently in the story. Uh, so as soon as the dream sequence started, 
I have to admit, in my apartment by myself, I started laughing and chanting, Dolphin Boyfriend! Dolphin Boyfriend! Yes! Uh, because, as an aside, for those of you who haven't caught that episode yet, and uh, you should, uh, there's a dream in which a very handsome man with glowing green eyes transforms into a dolphin that is beached in the protagonist's backyard in one very erotic dream sequence. Uh, this was even more luridly erotic than that, I thought. I was uh, it kind of amazingly given how, how many years it was made prior to the fruit machine. And he wakes up and he stares into the camera and he says, unnatural. Uh, it's really obvious to us that he has a thing to Joel. Not obvious to himself, but then his parents have a brief conversation immediately afterwards that makes it clear, I think, that even they know what's up. The only person on the planet that does not know what is up sexually with Stephen is Stephen, apparently. Yeah, Stephen's about to turn 18, and his mother uh, says he's it's so late and he's so unaware and on and the milkman and <laughs> the dad says something poetic like the the late spring is the strongest a late spring spring never lies there I, we I go wrote down, a late spring never lies i actually I, I wasn't sure i had to i had to write it down and make a note of it i wanted to talk about it uh and then it became clear later that is what they were talking about uh, just because i for for a 70s movie it seemed really daring to me to show uh, his parents, who turn out to be quite a bit more subversive than maybe you would think at first as the plot unfolds, that apparently they are positive that he's gay and are just waiting for him to come out to them or come out to himself and are completely fine with it, but just being patient. Which is very sweet. And it kind of allows Rudkin to get homosexuality out of the way it's sort of the first door that steven needs to go through and again 1974 having a gay teen protagonist and having that not be what the story is about is very exciting to find and i i i want if nothing else i just want more people to be aware of this movie but and just th think he doesn't die or commit suicide or anything it's wonderful because he, once he's done dreaming about sex, he's dreaming about angels and demons and conservatives chopping children's hands off to keep them pure. Oh, and Sir Edward Elgar, the composer of The Dream of Herontitus. Man, I love a place, uh, or rather, I love a piece that lets its freak flag fly and is just unabashedly weird and dares you to keep up with it or like go do some research afterwards to understand what the hell they were talking about. And this piece does that uh, just unabashedly. What genre would you say this movie is? I've heard it referred to as folk horror, but there are only, in my mind, about four horror sequences in the piece, and they don't set the tone of the film as a whole. Yeah, I would disagree with terming it a folk horror. I see where they get that from because there are sequences that have violence or the supernatural or darkness to them. But if anything, the folkness in the piece is not is not the villain. Uh, if if anything, it's the forces that oppose that sort of pagan folklore philosophy that are the true allegorical and metaphorical villains of the piece i think we see especially uh when we get to that truly bonkers ending vision sequence which i hope we'll spend plenty of time talking about in a bit 
if I had to put it in a bucket, I would say it's a coming of age film. Uh, definitely uh, one that indulges in a ton of magical realism, but but not a horror movie remotely, I wouldn't say. Well, the director, Arthur Clarke, his best known works were kitchen sink realism. And I think in some ways it fits this fantasy well because Stephen keeps finding these layers hidden underneath the sort of conformist world that he's grown up in. Everything from government secrets under the fen to angels and demons watching him to the town being named after King Penda. Pin Vin was once Pin Fin was once Penda's Fen because King Penda was the last of the pagan kings, not actually the last, but they say he was the last in the film, who was killed by the British when they took over the land. So let me set the scene for this finale. Stephen meets face-to-face with the Tory mother and father of England, who suggest that he should stay a pure child of light and throw himself into the flames like Joan of Arc before him. It reminds me of the ending of the musical Pippin in some ways. Uh, same thing. Be The best way to self-actualize is to kill yourself in a blaze of glory. And Stephen gives this lovely little speech. He says, I am nothing pure. My race is mixed. My sex is mixed. I am woman and man, light with darkness. I am nothing special, nothing pure. I am mud and flame. Which shows how how much he's learned, a real sign of character growth. And so the mother of England says, if the light can't have him, the darkness must not, and she lights him on fire. Ed, talk to me about this scene. Sure. So, well, one thing I have to ask you right away, though, is so is your take on this, but do you think what they're trying to get him to do is to commit suicide there? Because I think I would disagree, actually. Tell me how you read that scene. So, uh, from my point of view... They're coming to him and asking him to step forward into the place of sort of properness and priggishness and cis hetero white male power that could be his birthright if he's willing to put on the mask and wear it. And there is some kind of temptation to power that I think they're intentionally referencing there because... One of the things that's important to me about that scene is that Stephen is up on a high place when they come to him. And it reminds me of one of the scenes from the Bible where Jesus is out in the desert and Satan comes to him and takes him up on high and says, look at all the cities of the world and you can rule them all. I think that the two, the mother and the father, have some kind of language that that actually uh, references that specifically. They say something like, the kings of the earth you can govern. That was really reminiscent to me of that temptation that Satan brings to Jesus, except that rather than it being the temptation of evil and corruption, it's the temptation of, well, still corruption, I would argue, but that sort of puritanical priggishness, sort of scolding mask of invincible purity that a, a certain kind of uh, religious zealot can project sometimes. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but that's that's kind of what I was taking from it. Oh, one I like thing, that. Uh, one thing that I loved about it, too, that's really kind of satanic about them, as you say, she tries to set him on fire, and actually she does set him on fire, I would say. 
Uh, it's just that it gets put out very quickly. But the way that they do it is really cool. It's like a nasty bit of modern witchcraft because Stephen refuses them and starts to run away. And the father takes out a camera and takes his picture. And then the snarling, the mother grabs the picture and lights the picture on fire. It's this nasty bit of like sympathetic magic. And because the image, the graven image of Stephen is being burned by her, he starts to catch on fire as well. Um, so I thought that was I thought that was really cool. I'm always a sucker for you know demonic magic and spirits and the supernatural. So I I really loved that part. But then he is saved, and uh, I don't know if you want to say a little bit more about <laughs> about what happens there. So the final scene of this film confuses me a bit, but he calls out to King Penda, who appears before him, putting out the flames and banishing the tormentors and they like explode by the way let's be clear it's quite most of their special effect budget clearly was uh was designed to make king penda appear as the screaming mother and father tories catch flame and blister away into nothingness and he gives Stephen a pep talk basically a blessing blessing, telling him he his questioning mind has made him a carrier of the light well, th- this is one of those times where it's it's very clearly a play with an author that's got some ser- some serious ideas uh, that he's trying to communicate. The sort of blessing that King Penda gives to Stephen then is what he, the playwright, the author, is is arguing for the audience to embrace and decide to do. Uh, in other words, don't fit in, be weird, be subversive, be be queer, be atheist, be questioning, investigate instead of accepting. And what you're doing is carrying the true, I guess, spark of what it really means to be human, or in this piece, what it really means to be English, so to speak, forward into the future, much more truly than embracing any of this, you know, prim and proper, pinkies out, false morality, um, espoused by the mother and father Tory figures in the in the piece. I, I think overall the language in the piece is beautiful. And actually this final blessing by King Penda is, it was striking enough that I, I, I wrote it down. Cherish the flame, we shall rest easy. Stephen, be secret. Child, be strange. Dark, true, impure, and dissonant. Cherish our flame, our dawn shall come. The author doesn't shy away from the poetical remotely in this piece. He puts that kind of poetry in the mouths of most of his characters. Though, of course, it was an ancient pagan king providing a blessing to our character after appearing in a flash of light, uh, then I, I suppose more than any other character in the piece, he's earned the right to sound a bit poetical. Who would you recommend this film to today? Oh, every, everyone. That's kind of how I felt about uh, the fruit machine. Uh, people need to see more weird stuff. Well, my initial inclination is to say this film just wouldn't be released today. You'd never see something this odd and subversive, but also willing to be this dour, frankly, at times, uh, actually get put out anywhere. Uh, but I speak too soon. There are still art houses that, that would, would do a film like this. Like I could maybe see... A24, for example, doing something like this. It might, there might be some weird streaming, streaming service or other that a piece like this could still find a home on. It's, it's a lesson still holds, I would say, its thesis, the 
be, you know, be weird, be strange, be queer, embrace your, your horniness, embrace your, your doubt and everything about you that makes you not fit in and, and you'll be okay. You know, it gets better, so to speak, uh, still very much is a, is a message that everyone would benefit from. Um, so yeah, I recognize, I recommend it to anybody uh, that's got about 90 minutes to spare. And I think it does stand out still today by being a piece of, I guess you could call it a piece of fantasy fiction with that just happens to have a queer protagonist. And those Magical are still in realism. You know what it is? It is a gay fantasia on, um, on English political themes. Love it. And the reason I say that, of course, is that's the subtitle of Angels in America by Tony Kushner. Well, thank you so much, Ed, for joining me again. I knew you'd have something to say about this one. Always <laughs> a pleasure. Keep on, keep, on ha- keep on having me on for the weird stuff that I've never seen before. Uh, you're expanding my horizons. Thank you for listening to Rainbow Colored Glasses. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Glasses Rainbow. The music you're listening to is Squares, licensed under Creative Commons. If you like us, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We'll see you next time.